What do you do if the only way to get the job is to lie on the application? What do you do if the only way to keep the job is to lie to the inspector that's coming through? What do you do when you're buying a vehicle and the only one you can afford is affordable because, as it turns out, the salesman wants you to pay some of it in cash with no receipt, which means you're cheating the system, cheating the taxman? What do you do if a really good friend is going to be really upset if you don't participate fully in their pre-wedding party? These are the kind of questions that we're dealing with all the time. These are the kind of challenges that we face in our culture. How is it possible to live an undefiled life in a society that is shot through with sin? We're in a culture here in the UK that shifted in a major, major way. My parents lived in a a society that had a consensus, a Christian consensus. It didn't mean that everyone was Christian, But it meant that everyone agreed on what marriage was. Everyone agreed on what right and wrong was. Everyone agreed on how things should be. But that's not the way it is now. Where my parents grew up in a Christian society, my children are growing up in a society where Christianity is a sort of a relic of a faith that's dismissed and marginalized and treated as completely irrelevant. You can do that if you like, but don't don't let it affect you. Don't let it affect anybody else. Don't let it be something that defines you. And so we're living in a culture, in a society today, that is actually surprisingly like the culture we're looking at in this series. In this series, we're looking at the book of Daniel. The series is called Against the Flow, and it's the story, really, in the book of Daniel, it's the story of some godly young men who go against the flow of an entire society. It's a story of four teenage boys who were taken away hundreds of miles from everything that they knew, everything that was familiar, into a completely different world. It's a bit like my parents uh, going out of the country for a few decades and coming back in and finding it completely different. That's the book of Daniel, and that's why it's relevant for us. Even though it's uh, over 2,500 years old, the book of Daniel is incredibly relevant because the society that they were dealing with is a lot like the society that we're dealing with. So how do we live in a way that is undefiled when our society is absolutely antagonistic to all that is godly? If you've got a Bible, please turn to Daniel chapter 1. If you want a Bible, put your hand in the air. We'll get one to you. I've got some at the front and at the back. So Daniel chapter 1. And if someone has a page number, that would be helpful. 737. Like the Boeing. 737. Short haul flight through Daniel chapter 1, page 737, okay? So let's take a look at this, first seven verses. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, 
his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego or Abednego. That seven verses right there is like a total takeover of everything that they'd ever experienced, of everything that they'd ever known. It's so hard for us to imagine what it was like for those four. They they were probably teenage uh, young men from Jerusalem, from the tribe of Judah. Jerusalem was relatively a small town at that time. And they were taken uh, in this first exilic group. So Nebuchadnezzar was in charge of the Babylonian armies. He was the general. His dad was still the king back in, in, uh, in Babylon. And he came to Jerusalem in 605 BC and he besieged it. And while he was besieging Jerusalem, news arrived that his father had died. And so he was king. And so instead of finishing the job in Jerusalem, he headed back to Babylon to be crowned as king, and he just took a few of the the brightest and the best with him. He came back later, or his armies did, 597, they besieged Jerusalem again, then 587, 8-6. So over the course of about 20 years, three times the Babylonians came against Jerusalem. They wanted to deal with the Jerusalem problem. And Daniel and his three friends are among this group that are taken in that first siege. Now, I say it's a total takeover. It's a total takeover and a transformation of their whole world. Just think about what they experienced. For a start, they were used to living in Jerusalem, and the the centerpiece of Jerusalem was the temple. And in the temple, that's where the presence of God dwelled. And so the the people of Israel would be just constantly, if they were godly, if they were uh, responsive to God, they would be thrilled at the wonder that the God who created everything, the heavens and the earth, everything was dwelling in a special way in their midst. That made them different from all the other nations. And in the temple, they had all the temple rituals and the, the, the things that would take place, the sacrifices and so on. And that was just part of normal life for them. And then in verse 2, we discover that Nebuchadnezzar took some of the vessels from the temple and he made them trophies in his cabinet. He he took uh, cups and bowls and, and, and things that would have been used, things that were special, things that the normal Jew would never touch. He took them. And he took them back to his land, and and in the treasury of his God, it's kind of like a museum, he had a cabinet with the Israel God trophies, the mementos. And so I would imagine that if you were Daniel and his friends, maybe you had the chance on an off day, if you ever had a day off, to go down and walk through the treasury of, of the God, whichever one it was, and see the different cabinets. 
Ah, there's the mementos from this country, their God lost. And there's the mementos from this other country, obviously their God lost. Oh, and there's some vessels from the temple in Jerusalem, obviously their God lost. And they would get to go and see something that back in Jerusalem they would never have seen. And so the trophies in the cabinet were kind of, uh, they seemed like nothing, cups, bowls to us, but that's massively important. That, that, that would have rocked the world of those young men. And then we see the uh, education program in verses 3 to 5. Here we've got the training for the court. So these royal, noble young men are being trained so that they can become part of the court, part of the leadership of Babylon. It's the best way to make sure that when you take people away from their homeland, they don't rise up and leave. You take the brightest and the best, the Oxford and the Cambridge graduates, and then you put them through an immersion course, train them in everything in your culture, and then they're not going to want to give up all the privileges and all the riches and all the power that they have in order to lead a little rebellion and try and make it back to a destroyed land. And so Daniel and his three friends are in an education, an education to make them Babylonian. This is total immersion. Okay, they're getting taught the literature and the language and the culture and the history. They're getting taught everything so that they can be completely Babylonianized. There's a new word that I'm quite excited to use. Okay, so everything has been made relative. The vessels from the temple have become just another trophy cabinet. The God that you believe is in charge of everything, well, obviously he's not. And now the education that makes you Babylonian is piled on top of that. You see, they're, they're having their whole world rocked. And then finally, they get their names changed. Okay, they get a, a trading of the names, which is an exchange of identity. So I don't know how, how things would have gone for them, but the chief eunuch seems to be the one that gives them the new names. And I wonder if they had any sort of conversation at that point. Maybe they were chatting together and, uh, in, in Hebrew or uh, you know, in their own language, and, and this, the eunuch comes along and says, um, you need to speak this language now. Oh, yeah, okay. Hi, my name's Daniel. Oh, that's an interesting name. What does Daniel mean? Ah, Daniel means my God is judge or God is my judge. Hmm. God is your judge. That's a bit negative, isn't it? Well, no, no, because, because with our God, when he judges, he, he does what is right. He always does what is right. And there's a sense in which he delivers and he cares for his people as well. So actually, we, we look forward to judgment because our God is going to make things right. Oh, interesting. What about you? Ah, hi, my name's Hananiah. That's a strange name. What's your mum thinking? Well, actually, it has a meaning. It means the Lord is gracious. Not only is he the judge of all the earth, but he's also gracious, he's kind, he's good, he's giving, and he's generous, and, and he gives what we don't deserve. Ah, interesting. What about you? Well, my name is Mishael. Uh, that means, who is like God? Who is like God? Well, your God sounds kind of sappy, according to your friend here, all nice and kind. No, 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 no. He, he's the, the great God. He's the judge and the giver and the creator. He's the one in charge of all. There's no one to compare to him. Go on, then. what's your name? Uh, my name is Azariah. That means that the Lord helps. Ah, helps what? 
Well, he helps his people. Helps you do what? Well, he helps us, you know, he helps us when times are tough. Hmm. We are talking about the God whose vessels are in the treasury of our God, right? Yes. So your judge, who is, you know, the deliverer, who is gracious, who is uh, unlike any other, and who is uh, the help, isn't. Well, we think he is. Well, I'd, I'd like you to forget that. Here, let me help you out. I'll give you some new names. Daniel, forget that. Silly name, Belteshazzar. Belteshazzar. What does that mean? Let me look it up. It means may Bel protect his life. Bel is one of the gods of the Babylonians. May Bel protect his life, not some other god judge. All right, next one. What about Hananiah? Let's call you Shadrach. Commanded by Aku, the moon god. He's in charge now. So none of this gracious stuff of your God that's in a trophy cabinet. Uh, Aku is the one who's in command. And Mishael, who is like God, let's go with Meshach, shall we? Because who is like Aku? Because he's obviously better, because your God lost. And then last of all, Azariah, I don't know how to spell that, so let's call you Abednego, servant of Nabu. You get the privilege of having the same God in your name that Nebuchadnezzar has in his. Happy? Uh, Fine. And that's the end of that. You see, it was total immersion. Their names were changed. Their identities were changed. Everything was changed. How in the world are they going to stand in that kind of a setting? I've got a couple of pictures. Andy showed us some last week. But just to give you some sort of sense of the, the grandeur of Babylon, this was the biggest city in the world at the time. This is the Neo-Babylonian uh, era, so about 600 BC. Uh, you've got the Euphrates River through the middle of the city, which will become important in a few chapters. But that city was absolutely vast. I, I, I tried to figure it out. It's possibly between 30 and 50 times bigger than Jerusalem at that time. That's like us only ever experiencing huge Chippenham as if Chippenham were the capital, and then going to a city uh, of two and a half million people. That's overwhelming. And so it, we've got a couple of uh, pictures here. Uh, that's not a photograph, although it looks like it. You just get a sense of the vastness of the city and the, the towering uh, ziggurat in the middle there and different temples and different buildings. Apparently, the walls around the outside of the city were big enough to have chariot races on the top of the wall. Okay, that's impressive. Okay, that was huge. Another picture. Uh, this is a, a rendering. But this gate here in, in the sort of foreground is, is a famous one. Just the front portion of that, you get that in, in mind. Uh, you can see that today if you go to a museum in Berlin. It's been kind of re, uh, recreated. And you see the people just by way of, uh, where are we? Here, that's two people. Right there, that's a sense of the scale of that gate. That was one of the eight gates of Babylon. Now you imagine being a, a teenager, and all you've ever known and all you've ever been taught is the God of Israel is the God of the whole world, and he's in charge, and all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens, and he's the one that's in charge, and then that happens. And you end up in that culture, in that society, being absolutely immersed into it. How in the world can you stay faithful to God in that? 
Before we move on to the, the second half of the chapter, we've got to notice three words. There's three words in this first section. I read it over, you heard the words, but they may not have registered, and they're so important. Because when you go down this, it just seems to be so overwhelming. We've got the uh, trophies in the cabinet in verse 2, the training for the court, 3 to 5, the trading of the names in 6 and 7. It feels like a total disaster. But go back to verse 2. Notice how it begins. The Lord gave. The Lord, the God of Israel, gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. That's what the Bible consistently teaches us, is that God is the one who is really in charge. He's the one that's sitting on the throne above all thrones. He's the one that can dictate what happens in this world. And we down here are looking at thrones and we're scared of some thrones and bothered by other thrones and nervous about some thrones. And yet the big throne has never had a replacement king on it yet. And it never will. The Lord is the one who's really in charge. And there's no indication of that in these seven verses other than we're told that the Lord gave everything over to Nebuchadnezzar. Now, if you're in Daniel's sandals or his friend's sandals, that means that you're trusting something that all the evidence says is not true. Everything you see, all your 12 hours of lessons every day, your evening strolls in the hanging gardens or by some shrine, everything is screaming at you, your God has lost, your God has failed, your God is not the one who's in charge, the gods of the Babylonians are in charge. And yet, Daniel and his three friends continue to trust that God is the one who's really in charge. One of the reasons for that, I think, it comes out later in the book, is that they were people of the book. They knew their Bibles. They'd heard the message of Jeremiah, what we have in Jeremiah 29, where God predicted that this would happen. They'd heard the message of Isaiah 39, where God over a hundred years before predicted that this would happen. And so they knew that the Babylonians were coming and they knew that they would be taken into exile and they knew they should unpack their bags and they should settle down. Here's a verse you might know out of context, but here's the context. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to uh, prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope. Plans to give you a future. I'm kind of butchering it. But you, you know, maybe you've heard that verse. God's plans were plans for a people in exile. And in that context, what he's saying is don't live out of your suitcases. It makes no sense. You're going to be there for 70 years. Get your photos out and put them out beside your bed. Put the clothes on the hangers. You're not leaving quickly, but I do have good plans for you. And so Daniel and his friends knew their Bibles. They'd heard the message of the prophets. And so they were able to trust God when all the evidence was against them. They were able to step into each new day knowing whose kingdom is the ultimate kingdom. Remember what Jesus said? Seek first his kingdom. Seek first the kingdom of God. Make that your concern. Make that your priority. Maybe they, they would have thought, they wouldn't have thought of that one because that was still to come, of course, from Jesus. But maybe they thought of Proverbs 3, 5, five and 6. In all your ways, don't lean on your own understanding. No, in all your ways, acknowledge God and he will make your paths straight. And so day after day, when all the evidence before them screamed that God is not in charge, 
they trusted that he was. And they acknowledged him and they honored him and they stepped forward into the classroom and they stepped forward and they stepped forward and on they went through three years of total immersion training. Now, when you get to verse uh, 8, we find that there's an issue. There's an issue that Daniel needs to stand against and he takes a stand and I want you to notice as we read it the way he does it. He takes a stand against some of this enculturation, and he does it in a way that I think is really impressive. And so I want us to to notice that as we're going. But let me read from verse 8, because there is an issue, a challenge they've got to face. Verse 8, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, he said, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh. Nice, love that phrase, fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Victory for the vegetarians right there, okay? What's the issue with food? I mean, they were getting the finest of cuisine, the the stuff that the king ate by royal appointment, H.R.H. Nebuchadnezzar, right? This was the stuff with the royal seal on it, the fattest of meats and the richest of wines. And Daniel said, I cannot take that because it will defile me. Notice Daniel hasn't complained about the education. Daniel hasn't taken a stand against what he sees going on in society But when it comes to participating, he has to take a stand. There are some Christians that that make themselves kind of annoying by making noise constantly about everything they see that is wrong in society. Now, there is a place for uh, political action. That's the way the system works in this country. There is a place for signing petitions and making your voice heard. I don't think there's a place for being annoying all right, there isn't a place for saying, that bothers me, so I'm just going to be annoying. No, there's a difference between observing and participating, and Daniel recognizes that difference. And now when they come to sit down at the table and the food is served, he's got a problem because he cannot participate in that food. I don't think it's because of the Jewish dietary laws. You'll sometimes see pictures of Daniel face-to-face with a pig, you know, like roasted on his plate. I don't think that was really the issue because wine wasn't part of the dietary restrictions. So while there may be some of that, uh, there may be an issue because there was blood still in the meat that would be part of their laws and, and so on. I think the bigger issue was that the way the Babylonians would have worked is that the meat and the wine would have been offered first to one of the gods. 
and then it's brought to the table. After being blessed, you know, we, we kind of do our pre-meal prayer. I imagine they had their pre-meal rituals too. And so after being offered to Bel or Marduk or Ishtar or whoever, Nabu, it's brought in its place before you and say, it's good, we've blessed it. Oh, I can't participate in that. I can't be part of idol worship. And so Daniel is taking a stand, not because he sees something is wrong, but because he's being pushed to participate in something that for him would be wrong. But notice the manner that he protests. He isn't annoying, is he? He isn't rude. He isn't kind of in your face. He is very gracious. And I think he represents the God that he represents. You see what I mean? He's doing it in a manner fitting for the God that he's taking a stand for. And if we as Christians would always try to do that, when we take a stand in society, when we take a stand against something that is being pushed upon us, if we could do it in a way that reflects God's heart and God's tone and God's grace, surely that would help. Maybe that would help us to have favor in the eyes of those that have to deal with us. In this case, the chief steward basically says, I like you, but I'm really scared of the king, so sorry, I can't help. And so Daniel goes down a level and says, okay, chap who's in charge of us, can we just do a test? Just test us for 10 days and then compare and contrast. And the implication is if this doesn't work, then we have to eat the food because we're not trying to get you killed. You see, there's a graciousness to that. We're opposed to being forced into something that is wrong, but we're not making your life miserable because of what matters to us. And so they, they took that stand graciously and carefully, and the test took place. And, um, and how did it turn out? We're going to see that in the last four verses from 17 through, or five verses, 17 through to 21. But I want you to notice that there's something implicit here. There's, there's risk. Like if, if, the, if the chief eunuch is saying, the king could take my head off for this, then if he would do that to his chief eunuch, surely he could do that to the foreign youth, right? So there's a risk that Daniel and his friends are taking. You know, when, when you're in the midst of a society that's just opposed to the things of God, it will feel risky to take a stand and to go against the flow of society. There's a risk that is part of the story. More than that, there's, uh, as well as the risk, there's opposition that's always part of the story. There may even be suffering that's part of the story. But what we know is that the risk and the opposition and the suffering are not the whole story. They're part of the story. And from Daniel's perspective, that's all they would see. Like, okay, this is risky. Let's do it anyway. Because this is not the whole story. Because if we just pan out a little bit, if we kind of get in a helicopter and lift out from Babylon 600 BC and just think about the situation, what's going on? God, the God of Israel, who's got a plan that he's had from the beginning to rescue his people from a sinful world, has in his plan put them in this place at this time, facing this opposition, these challenges, these risks, maybe this suffering but it's part of a bigger plan. And so they know that ultimately, they don't know how it's going to work out, but ultimately, God has a plan 
to deal with sin. Ultimately, the people that are preserved through this exile lead on down through the generations until God's king comes. And when he comes, Daniel didn't know all this in detail, but he he knew it it was happening eventually. He knew there was an end to the story. And when God's king stepped into this world, he faced risks and he took them. He faced total opposition and he went forward anyway. He faced unbelievable suffering and he went through with that. And defeating sin and death on the cross, Jesus rose to life again and is now the king above all kings, is seated on the throne, his kingdom will be established. Daniel's going to get to all of that. He's going to get to the future hope, but it's part of their mindset in the present reality. We're facing risks. We're facing opposition. We may even be facing suffering. But this is only part of the story. Part of the story of a gracious God who ultimately faces the risks, faces the opposition, and endures the suffering for us. We're part of a story. When we have to take a stand in our lives, at work, at school, in our family, in our neighborhood, when we're forced into a situation where we have to stand against being pushed into something that would defile us, we can do so with confidence, not because we know how the story will end, but because we know who's on the throne. And we know who's really in charge. And because God is the one who is really in charge... That means that we can stand where necessary, graciously, carefully, but boldly. We can stand even when we don't know what's going to happen, even when we don't know how it's going to play out. Now, in this case, it turns out pretty well. Verse 17, as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. That will be useful to him. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. They got the ultimate positions. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So how did it turn out for them? They got the best place and they were there to the end. Daniel was there till the end of the Babylonian Empire. (laughs) The impossible. This great city, when that was taken... Daniel was still there, and we'll see that in a few chapters' time. Now, there's no guarantee that when we stand for God that that's the end of all suffering and opposition and and risk, right? There's no guarantee that everything's going to suddenly go well. But generally speaking, it does go well. Not always, but generally speaking, when we trust in God's character and we do the right thing, even if it's going to cost us, God takes care of our welfare, generally speaking, in this life, ultimately always in the next. There will never be any person in heaven who says, my one regret is that I took a risk for God. My one regret is that I took a stand for God. I wish I hadn't. No one's ever going to say that then. And so in this life, it may not work out like it did for these guys, but it might. 
And generally, God does tend to, to give you the faithfulness that you need. I mean, really, our faithfulness is a responsiveness to his faithfulness, right? He's the one that's got plans and promises, and he's keeping his promises and fulfilling his plans. And so in light of who he is, we can trust him and trust him to give us what we need to face the challenges in front of us. We can trust him, not necessarily to give us great wisdom and learning in Babylonian culture, probably don't need that. But he'll give us what we need as we stand for him. And as well as our welfare, there's also the impact of our witness. Think about that. Think about what Daniel and and Azariah, Mishael, and uh, Hananiah were were achieving. Their steward, the, the one guy who knew what was going on and why they were, you know, munching on sweet corn. He was he was watching. The whole country wasn't, but he was. And it would have made a difference to him. And I wonder if some of the other youths from Israel, the ones that were munching away on the pork and the the food because it's too risky to take a stand, I wonder what difference it made to them to see these four doing something different and trusting God even against all that they could see in front of them. You see, there's a power to taking a stand. It doesn't have to be the whole country knows, but some will. Some will see it. Some who will be drawn to know why you're willing to take that risk. Your God must be real. And others who say they worship your God and yet are compromising. They'll be challenged. They'll be stirred. They'll be helped by the stand that we take. And so the question for us, since none of us have been taken into exile, the question for us is this. In what ways... With all the onslaught of society, in what ways are we tempted to compromise? In what ways are we tempted to defile ourselves by the things that we say or the things that we do or the things that we participate in? Because Daniel 1 says to us this, God's in charge. It may not look like it. All the evidence may be against it, but God is in charge, and because of who he is, you can stand graciously, carefully, wisely, but you can stand against the flow. I'm going to pray for us, a really uh, short prayer, and then I'm going to invite you just for a minute or so to turn to the person next to you and just give the first thought that comes to mind in answer to this question, where does our society tempt us to defile ourselves? Where, what is the area in which, at work, at school, on the internet, in the family, in our neighborhood, what is the area in which we are tempted to be defiled in order to fit in? And as we share that just with uh, the person next to us, uh, feel free to, to just kind of interact briefly about that. And maybe you remember what the person says and pray for them later. Because we're all faced with different challenges but we're in a culture just like they were, a culture that treats our faith as a cute relic that doesn't apply to life. And instead, we want to trust God to help us to live for him in life. Let me pray for us, and then we'll just have a brief interaction, and the musicians will come back up, and we'll sing a few songs to finish up our time. Father, we thank you that you are on the throne And we thank you that the kind of God you are and the kind of authority you have 
means that we can stand, even if we stand alone, we can stand against the onslaught of sin in our culture. Not because we want to be difficult, not because we want to be awkward, not even because we want to be noticed, but because we want to be pleasing to you. We don't want to be defiled. And so we pray that you would give us wisdom to spot the ways in which uh, the culture is, is drawing us into places you wouldn't want us to be. Give us the courage to stand, not because we're heroes of the faith, because we're not, but because you're the one we look to. And even as we talk with one another, would you help us to encourage one another to live for you, even when all the evidence is against your, uh, your being on the throne. Lord, we know that you are. Help us to be men and women who trust in that because ultimately you've proven that you can be trusted by sending Jesus to die as we thought about earlier. And so stir our hearts, give us discernment, help us to see clearly. And then Lord, this week, help us to stand, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.